everyone, Corey here. Welcome to this week's chapter by chapter recap. I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Hey, Matlock. How you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing good. Good. Glad to be back. Yes. Yeah. Back and at it, we are <laughs> looking at Isaiah chapter 54 through to Jeremiah chapter 9 today because that was our assigned reading through Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV. Right. So let's jump right into it because you've got some really interesting themes brought out by both the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 54, uh, he describes the future of Zion, of Jerusalem. And it's pretty idyllic, joyful, without shame, without disgrace, without humiliation, redeemed, possessing the unshakable love of God. Uh, I, I did this last year too, but I want to read verses 16 to 17 because I think it's really um, helpful to, to, to the overall theme of Isaiah 54. It says this, See, it is I who created the blacksmith who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer, the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon formed, forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me declares the Lord. So we see God as being over all things and that he offers this protection, this unshakable love to those that he has redeemed and vindicated. Isaiah chapter 55, this is a call for people to then come to God to learn from him to listen to his words and to find his salvation uh, because there are such great promises that come along with this salvation. In Isaiah chapter 56, we see this salvation and this hope for those who bind themselves to the Lord, who cling to the Lord. It's contrasted with the disaster that will overtake the wicked. So there's no hope for the wicked. It's not the same at all. So that's why that cry in Isaiah chapter 55 is so important for people to actually come and 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 live with the Lord and learn from him because the the alternative is horrible uh, as as shown here by Isaiah chapter 56. All right. In Isaiah chapter 57, a main theme is that even the death of the righteous is better than the coming judgment for the wicked. So even if the wicked live for a really long time, their coming judgment is going to be so bad that it's better to be righteous but dead. Uh, it's, it's, it's better for the wicked not to see what's coming because it's, it's a lot. Um, God will receive on the flip side those who are repentant so if you're wicked but you're determined not to stay wicked you repent to God God will receive you he will not be in this judgment mode forever that's not the only mode that God has he also provides rescue and forgiveness and healing Uh, but the the wicked person needs to repent in order to receive that in order to get that. Isaiah chapter 58. This one is really interesting. So we learned that the people of Israel and Judah, they were still fasting. So they were still going through some of their religious traditions. They were fasting and praying 
to God. And they they couldn't understand why God wasn't answering them, uh, why he seemed to be angry with them, wasn't intervening for them. Now, Isaiah very clearly tells them, it's because you're breaking all of the covenant stipulations of God while you're fasting. So you can't just use your religious tradition whenever and however you feel like it. There's a whole covenant that the people of God had agreed to live by, and they weren't living by it. But when they wanted something, they would be very pious and fast and pray. But Isaiah lets them know it doesn't work like this. So outward displays of devotion actually mean nothing when they're not paired with actual devotion, spiritual devotion of your heart and your mind and and your actions. So God has always required that people follow him with their hearts, with their minds, with their actions, their lives. You know, we actually have to be truly impacted by the existence of God rather than just say that we are. And more than just mere existence by the, just by God as a whole, like, like existence, I think is just a self-evident thing. Or somewhere between incorrigible and self-evident. But uh, but who he is. But who he is and as a person and what he does. And the things that you can intuit by looking at nature. We discussed this before. Just by looking at nature, looking at humans and how amazing everything is. Just that general sense of awe and wonder. Uh, but also to, to harken back to what you're saying about that legalism that, that, that was kind of spread it out. And Isaiah is a great um, example of... He highlights the best examples of legalism in the Old Testament. Uh, one of one of the best prophets who does so, anyways. Where you're just following the laws rigidly mm-hmm. and hollowly, uh, hollowly. It's a hollow, rigid following of the law, mm-hmm. um, without any you know sense of heart or anything else about it. And as if the law itself is justified is justifying. So if I just do this rule, I'm justified in doing this, applying this rule, mm-hmm. and. This is like the perfect example of that where it's like, but ironically, at the same time, by doing that, you're also making your own rules. So you're by maintaining the rules, you're the, God calls these legalistic people lawbreakers. I think Isaiah calls them lawbreakers mm-hmm. in there. And so they're law breaking, but they're maintaining the rules. Well, how can that be so? Because they're making their own rules for what it, what's it There's for. There's extra rules. Yeah, right. they They've were made... involved in in other cultural worship practices and, right. and, and, and different things. And, right, and the heart of following the rule for you know, to justify itself as if just a, a rigid compliance is in itself a new rule. It's not the purpose of the rule. Right, mm-hmm. so you, you remove the purpose to create your own new rules. Mm-hmm. So it's like what I'm saying is, what's interesting is the law breaking and following the rules go hand in hand. Whether you're liberal or conservative, whatever side you're on, legalism is inherently of that of that sort. It's, yeah, yeah it, it's yeah. And both Isaiah and Jeremiah are going to get into that specifically when they talk about circumcision. So we're going right. to get there, and it's going to. I'm just dog earing that for everyone here. Yeah, to kind of hold on to that thought. Sure. As we as we go through. All right, Isaiah chapter 59. So this chapter is all about how Judah and Jerusalem should understand the oppression, the evil, the hardship that's about to come upon them. So their temptation is going to be once Jerusalem is destroyed, once Judah has been humbled. It's going to be to say that God was just unable 
to save them. That God, as of them, was overpowered. He was unable to rescue. But verses 1 to 4 of Isaiah 59 say this. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Now, because of these things, this wickedness that's going on in God's people, God's judgment is coming. It it cannot be stopped at this point. However, there's always, as Isaiah does, he weaves into his prophecies this, this idea that God will ultimately send a redeemer to Jerusalem. All right, so Isaiah chapter 60 then speaks of that beautiful redemption that that redeemer will bring, this restoration of Israel, how God will bring them back and how the nations, not just Israel and Judah, but the nations will serve God and help Israel and how God will together be the light of this kind of newly formed people group that are all following him. In Isaiah chapter 61, um, restoration as a theme continues on, uh, but there's a further development because it talks about God giving garments of salvation and of and robes of righteousness uh, to these people. So this is just showing that salvation and righteousness is not something that comes from within humanity itself. It is God who is bringing something external. He is bringing salvation. He is bringing righteousness and putting it on us like clothes. It's not coming from within us, but from without us, from God. We are incapable of manufacturing salvation. It's God's gift. And from an ancient perspective, when when you received a, a, um, a garment of clothing from a ruler or an authority, uh, you received a new status, a new identity. So these people who are receiving robes of righteousness and garments of salvation, they literally now are saved and are righteous uh, just based off of being gifted those those clothing. It's this new status. It's this new role Uh, And with that role and status come a new responsibility and new life. Okay, Isaiah chapter 62, this is all about how God will save Jerusalem and will give her a new name that means my delight is in her. There's a call for the watchman on Jerusalem's walls to give God no rest until he does this, until he reestablishes Jerusalem. So the people of God needed to pray and need to pray until this is accomplished. In Isaiah chapter 63, the first six verses, they envision God as a warrior taking vengeance on enemy nations, on on all nations. Uh, And the rest of the verses go through many times in history when God redeemed his people and then they rebelled against him. So the prophet 
begins to cry out to God to intervene again. Now it's time to redeem again. Please do that. Isaiah chapter 64 continues that cry for God to redeem once once again, to intervene once again. And it, it begins with, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And there's this really interesting lament by Isaiah. Uh, you know, verse seven says, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Uh, but then he, he, he kind of flops back. And in verse eight, he says, yet you, Lord, are our father. You are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Uh, do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. So he's acknowledging the sin, but he's crying out for God to come and redeem and save despite that. In Isaiah chapter 65, we get the beginning of God's response to all of this, to the to the prayers. And essentially, God says that it's the people who have been ignoring him, that he actually hasn't been holding himself back, but that the people's sin has literally put up a wall between him and them, that they've been actively ignoring him all the while saying that they're pious, they're listening, they're fasting, they're praying, they're faithful, but it's all lies. So God does outline, though, that the people who do truly seek him will be saved, filled with joy, and satisfied. Uh, And verses 17 to 25 of Isaiah chapter 65 describes something that's referred to as the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there are a few ways that this is interpreted. I'm just going to tell you three uh, without offering much commentary. I'm just going to tell you what they are uh, so that you can look into it for yourself. So the first option that the new heavens and the, the first way, one of the ways that the new heavens and new earth is interpreted is as a metaphor about what the restored Jerusalem will be. Another way is as the millennial kingdom of Christ or the Messiah. And another way is eternity. So what happens after all of this is done? All right. And now the last chapter of Isaiah, which is 66. So the theme of Isaiah chapter 66 is is really quite perfect because it's a prominent theme that's throughout the entire book of Isaiah. And that is hope through judgment. Hope even though there is great judgment. Though God will judge evil, whether that's national evil, corporate evil, personal evil, it will be judged. Nevertheless, there is hope for those who love and follow God. Now, at the same time, for those people who reject God, and instead embrace evil, judgment absolutely brings destruction for those people. So it's Isaiah 66 serves as a final warning, Isaiah's final warning to those not following God. And it acts as a comfort to those who are following God. And that's how Isaiah wraps up his book of prophecy. Mm. 
All right. We're going to do the first nine chapters of Jeremiah now. All right. Okay. So chronologically, Jeremiah chapter one opens up by letting us know when the prophet Jeremiah was alive. So his career as a prophet, if you can call it that, ministry, career, whatever you want to call it, spans from the reign of King Josiah to the destruction of Jerusalem under King Zedekiah. So essentially then that means that Jeremiah is living and prophesying during the last few reigns of the kings of Jerusalem ever. Mm-hmm. Like that that was it. He got to see the destruction of Jerusalem. This also makes Jeremiah contemporary with the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Daniel. So Ezekiel and Daniel were both taken as early exiles to Babylon. So they're not living in Jerusalem with Jeremiah, but they are prophesying, uh, you know, Ezekiel with the exiles and Daniel with the exiles who are now officials in um, uh, the courts of uh, Babylon. But Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. So they're contemporary, but not all in the same location. So chapter one begins by describing Jeremiah's call to become a prophet. And when God calls him to be a prophet, Jeremiah's like, I'm too young for this. This is, I'm too young for this. And God reaches out and touches Jeremiah's mouth, which I always, every time I read that, I'm like, that's way nicer than what Isaiah had to do. The burning coal? Yeah, Isaiah's, <laughs> Isaiah's mouth got touched by a burning coal from an angel. But yeah. I mean, this this seems way better. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't, but I mean, it seems better to me. Uh, but then God kind of warms Jeremiah up a bit as a prophet. Uh, God asks Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah first says, I see an almond tree. Now, there's so many interesting things about an almond almonds and why that would be the first thing that he saw. In fact, if you if you're on my YouTube channel right now, you can look around and in the spotlight section, there's a spotlight that I did on the symbolism of the almond uh, that I would recommend watching. But almond in Hebrew sounds like the word watch. And so God says, you've seen correctly for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. And then there's a double layer that I mean, watch the segment, watch the spotlight (laughs) Uh, or do your own study into almonds. It's always cool to do that too. Okay. Then the next thing that Jeremiah sees is a boiling pot that's tilting towards Jerusalem from the north. And God says, yes, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in this land. I am about to summon all the people of the northern kingdoms. So judgment judgment is coming from the north. So God is watching to make sure that it happens. It's going to happen. It's sure. And it's going to be judgment. So there's sure judgment coming to Jerusalem. So this is the overall theme of Jeremiah. And it would have been the culmination of of his ministry would have been the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, Jeremiah chapter two. God has Jeremiah proclaim to the people that they have rejected God and that God is charging them now, officially, legally charging them with their sin. Uh, And in verse 13, we get the two charges. Uh, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Uh, So essentially, You've forsaken me and you've tried to provide yourself with something to replace me with. Now, those broken cisterns that cannot hold water turn out to be 
pagan religions and foreign political and military powers. God in this chapter goes on to charge them with drinking water from the Nile. So that's their political alliance with Egypt and for going to Assyria to drink water from the Euphrates. So uh, essentially God's saying to Jerusalem, which is really interesting here, you have not remained satisfied with the provision that I've given to you. Instead, you're going to Egypt and Assyria for the provision that I've given them, all the while rejecting my plan for you. So, I mean, this is understandable. It is still hard as a human being Mm. uh, sometimes to accept God's plan for you specifically, especially when you look around at others or you go through difficult times. But we see this happening. It's a very human problem. Okay, so there's a lot of imagery in Jeremiah chapter 2. I love Jeremiah. But a particularly interesting image that, you know, is persistent and used often is this image of sin as a stain before God. It's literally a stain upon us that cannot be cleaned with soap. All right, Jeremiah chapter three. Uh, This is when Jeremiah begins to invoke um, a marriage illustration. So Israel is envisioned as an adulterous wife of God that Judah learned from. Judah watched this behavior and then began to mimic this behavior. Now, even though God divorced Israel, um, there was a call for Israel to return to God and he would still restore them. Uh, You know, it's also really interesting in Jeremiah chapter three, I always mention it because everyone loves uh, like kind of trying to guess where the Ark of the Covenant went. It's a big Bible mystery. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? It was so (laughs) big in the Bible and then it just drops off the pages and everyone has all these theories and the Apocrypha has theories and everyone has theories and gets all riled up about it. It's a fun thing to talk about. But verse 16 of Jeremiah three says, in those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, people will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. So this seems to indicate that by Jeremiah's time, the Ark of the Covenant had either been taken or destroyed uh, by by enemies. Remember, so many invasions had already happened. The Assyrian invasions have already happened. Egyptian invasions had already happened. So many many invasions. No, we can't find it now. No, I know. (laughs) I know. But hey... That's just that's just yeah. the theory based off of Jeremiah three sixteen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now that aside, uh, the point of God going into talking about the Ark of the Covenant is that if the people return to God, then God God Himself would dwell with the people. So the Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of God wouldn't be needed because God's presence would just be there. It would be there in Jerusalem. So that's right. the actual point right. of Jeremiah three sixteen, not where it is. But it's still interesting to think about. Okay. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 4. So Judah is going to be destroyed by the north, by Babylon, if they don't return to God, but specifically if they don't return to God and circumcise their hearts to the Lord. Right. So rather than forever altering your physical body, God wanted the people to forever alter their spiritual selves, their attitudes, their actions. And then there's a poetic description 
of the coming of the Babylonian invasion. And that's something that Moses spoke about. Yeah. Moses. In Deuteronomy. That's right. Yep. And it's kind of like an odd thing to say if you think about it. Like if you think about it too much. But um, it's really a powerful statement because the whole point is that the law needs to be in your heart. And like it can't just be something that you do outwardly. It needs to resonate, permeate, you know, completely affect who you are. And, th- and through that, you know, the, law, the Lord of the law, uh, the, the Lord's law is perfect. Through that, you'll gain wisdom, insight, understanding, and, and, and those things. Yeah. Well, because because Moses is the one that brought it up, and Moses was the original giver of the law, right. like this covenant of the law came through him, it's pretty obvious that the law was never meant to just be physical rules. Right. It was meant to be something that forever altered you, that you that you agreed to, that you, each individual and corporately as the people of God, you agreed to come under this covenant of God. Right. And you followed it because you knew who God was. Right. And you knew what he did. Yeah. And, and, and And so you followed him out of that motivation. So everything else that you did, whether it was the men being physically circumcised or bringing actual sacrifices or, or going... Uh, to celebrate the the yearly festivals, all of those flowed from that recognition, from that very real place of God is real, God is holy, right. God is just, like all of these things that we know about God right. to be true. And so it, it was supposed to be that way from the beginning. Yeah. Because Moses himself talked about it. Right. And, and this this is, it's a very different form. I don't know, I mentioned legalism earlier. It's a very different form because at this time, God was just kind of a given. There wasn't like a rampant atheism like we have today. Right. It was um, which God are you going to follow? Which God are you going to follow? And it was just kind of like the nature of that God mm-hmm. uh, or the nature of God himself. And um, that really changes the context because the other gods around them were do and receive. Do, right? Just, they were mm-hmm. very much like a legalistic bent. Mm-hmm. That's how things really worked. And it does tell you something about human nature to want to be like that. Mm-hmm. And it tells you, it almost it is really suggestive of that legalism is, is in fact not something that you're taught, but it's just a, kind of like it's part of sin. Mm-hmm. It's a part of this sin condition where it's, uh, you just don't really want to apply it to heart. You just want to kind of follow the rules. And what's interesting is it also tells you something about habits. Like people are like, oh, habits have changed your life. It's like these guys were making, this, this was literally habitual. They yeah. were doing this yeah. all the time. Didn't change a thing. So it can lose its meaning. It can just lose its meaning. And it just kind of becomes redundant. It can be great. Yes. But it can also lose its meaning. That's right. So it's like, it's not something you, you, it's not a basis. Yeah. Right. To determine value. Yeah. Um, And so that's important too. So there's, I know there's a lot to kind of explore there about the nature of of how this works. But um, I think what's important to, to remember too, is that like God was not thought of like how we today, when I talk about legalism today, we think of like people are, they're not really thinking about God, but it's like, oh, but they are. It's like, it's not like Nazism or, the, or you know, communist, uh, uh, the Soviet Union, where they like dispelled God and they had their own form of political legalism. This was a religious legalism, mm-hmm. which think about how much more, in a way, more of a smack against God that is. Mm-hmm. I'm taking the, you know, the priests who are pretending to do something on behalf of God. It is like, you know, when, when Jesus says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, like this generation 
is essentially worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that actually flows really nicely into the next chapter. Right. Because in Jeremiah chapter 5, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, sets up Jerusalem like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. Uh, In the sense... In the sense of when Abraham, back in Genesis, when Abraham was dealing with God to save the city. Right. Remember, God brings, you know, Abraham over so he has a view of the city and um, and Abraham begins to negotiate for the survival of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. And says, you know, like that that whole thing where he's like, oh, he, he, he negotiates him down. If you find 10 righteous people, then please don't destroy the city. And God says, I won't for 10. I can't find that. But verse one of Jeremiah chapter five uh God says to Jeremiah, if you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks right. the truth, I will forgive this city. Right. So God switches it. Right. So it's no longer like God, God God's he's like, look it. He's point. like all he's like, one, they're worse. They're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. And and interestingly, for the same reasons that you were saying. So something that really has bothered me this year reading Jeremiah chapter five, it's just really gotten to me and it's just been, it's stuck with me is verses 30 and 31. It says this, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. Mm. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? Right. So it's exactly what we've just been talking about. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, Jeremiah chapter four has led us to Jeremiah chapter five. It's <laughs> yeah. done. It's it's done. It's thematic dues, right? right? It really has. I mean, when you look at that in verse thirty-one, the prophets prophesy lies. They should be the ones warning the people of God's coming yeah. judgment of what they're doing wrong. They should be the ones pointing out from from the word of God yeah. like this isn't right. Yeah. This isn't right, but that's not what they're doing. And then the priests are ruling by their own authority. Right. So just do this tradition, and, just do that tradition, it'll be fine. This is a very scary thing. Yeah. Cuz this is not time no. bound. And, and you think about so to even add more kind of a thorough context to it. Think with the nature of the lie here. This isn't like Hey guys, like it's not, like, it's not like a cheap lie that no one's going to believe. Mm-hmm. This is like God will give you good things. God will give you. The, it's like well, give me, give me, give me. It's like yep. that's part of it. Yep. Part of it's pleasure, which I know Isaiah talks about the pleasure and abundance, um, right? And so it's like you have these 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 lies or temptations that sound appetizing. Mm-hmm. But they should not be taken. They should not be eaten, right? Yeah. Unless you become like it, unless yeah. you consume it. Um, and when you really think about the nature of these lies, they're half truths. Obviously, the best lies are half truths, mm-hmm. right? And um, how close the, the the best liar will always play it closer to the truth. It just goes to show you the the intimate knowledge you need of God, the, how, how much we need the Holy Spirit, but in so much that like how much we need to really understand. God's nature and motives to know that this doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, yeah. But yes, that's yeah. Yeah. Well, and we can we can evaluate who we're listening to. Right. We can evaluate that. Yeah. Through through reading the scripture and through knowing and just through through critical thinking as well. Right. You know, who are we listening to? The prophets prophesy lies. Who who are we listening to? The priests rule by their own authority. How are we choosing our pastors <coughs> today? Like if we're going to apply this today, how are we choosing our pastors? By by what authority are our pastors preaching? 
Yeah, no. Are I, they ruling? Are they preaching by their own word or are they preaching by the word of God? Yeah. And, and these are questions that we need to be asking ourselves. That, that's a huge can of worms. I'd like to talk about that. Maybe we, in a I, different I, thing. We, we can't. There's no time. There's we can't, no time. But, but I know. This is why, like, this This should be haunting. Yeah. Because this is a timeless thing. The, the, this is talking about human nature. So, yes, it's applied directly to here, to Jerusalem, to why they were being destroyed. But listen to, like, the principle of this. The, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. Yeah, the loving it part. It's like... But what will you do in the end? So, judgment is still coming. Right. It doesn't stop no matter... No no matter what they love it, if they love it or not, God's judgment and, is still, his justice is inevitable. Yeah. And there <clears> should <throat> be any word of God, whether by prophet or priest, ought to be convicting. Now, obviously, there are sometimes yeah. it can't always be. Obviously, there's something that where it's like, here's well, your redemption. We can't really, we mercy. don't have time but, to really like, yeah, we don't have time to explore it. But the point is, is that like, yeah, like <clears throat> if everything's hunky dory, it sounds perfect and it's going to make your life better, maybe we should. <laughs> Have some caution about it. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 6. So when he ends that way, what will you do in the end? Then Jeremiah ch- chapter 6 picks up on that and talks about how there is going to be a siege of Jerusalem, which is pretty much the worst thing that you could hope for in an ancient city that that, that you would dread, I should say, uh, would be being besieged. So <clears throat> then there's also this description giving of what the false prophets are saying. And basically the false prophets are saying, peace. There's going to be peace. Everything is going to be fine. God's not going to let Jerusalem fall. But the prophets were not correct. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah is told to go stand at the gate of the Lord's house. So the gate that would go into the temple complex from the city proper into the temple complex. Um, And he is supposed to go there and call for spiritual reform. His message is essentially, if you do not return to God, if you do not reform your ways, there will be destruction. Jeremiah then indicts them with their sin and says that the temple will be destroyed. Jeremiah chapter 8, well, really the, the end of 7 and into 8, has a prophecy about the Valley of Slaughter. So the Valley of Topheth, also called Ben Hinnom, where... The Judahites had practiced child sacrifice. This valley would become a massive burial ground for their own bodies. And even those who had already died and been buried and entombed around Jerusalem would be pulled out of their graves and their bodies, their bones exposed to the elements as a result of the coming warfare because of the evil that they had enacted through child sacrifice. There are more indictments of sin given in Jeremiah chapter 8, and then God begins, it switches from indicting and charging the people with their sin to God mourning for his people. Jeremiah chapter 9, this mourning for the people of Judah, it continues, and we get we get a really very good idea of why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet colloquially he's called that not in the bible but but he's just called that he would not have been liked at all by the people and especially by the rulers of judah and jerusalem except for king josiah who was at the beginning of his reign who was a reformer king he actually responded to jeremiah's words but no one else um he talks again about 
you know, this this circumcision of heart, which again is really interesting, <clears throat> spoken of a lot by Jeremiah. It's a theme. There's a final charge in Jeremiah chapter nine. It says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. And then it lists Judah with several other pagan nations. Uh, and, and God charges them, the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. So basically, they're following me only with their flesh, and it's not enough. It's not enough. We see, again, the dark side of religious practices being exposed where they can become, there's that danger of allowing them to become all that there is, allowing them to become a physical act only that's separated and void of actual meaning. Yeah. Which is very dangerous. Mm. All right. Any final words? Because that was the last chapter that we had to recap today. Um, no. No. no more to come. There's so much yeah. more to come. We're just scratching the surface Surface with Jeremiah. Leave your questions and comments below. And Matt Luck and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.